Hallelujah. So I stood two weeks ago in a small building in Niger, West Africa. I understood very little of what was being said, but I understood hallelujah. <laughs> and so that is how I greeted my brothers and sisters in Christ. Hallelujah, and that is how they greeted me. And so I greet you this morning with hallelujah. And you can say, well, there you go. Everybody's awake. So it is a great pleasure to be back here with you. I was last Lord's Day, but didn't get to preach. And, and now to open up God's Word with you, I do bring you again greetings. Uh, you have brothers and sisters in the faith all around the world, and it is always a great privilege uh, to get some amount of time with them. And, and those who are gathered there, they've already gathered this Lord's Day in, in villages uh, surrounding that city of Nehemiah and Niger, uh, surrounded by persecution uh, in a largely Muslim country. They are worshiping the God that we worship. They are praising the God that we praise. And they are praying for you. And they are thankful for you. And I hope you will pray for them and be thankful for them. Uh, This morning we're going to be in Acts 28. If you would go ahead and turn there, if you have not already, as we come now uh, to this final chapter in the book of Acts. If you've been with us, we started this journey uh, back in the fall of 2014. And now we've come to the last couple of sermons in Acts as we begin the final chapter. Uh, If you've not been with us, I would encourage you to read the book of Acts. And what you will find is the Acts of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of those early believers in the early church. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, the church then grew in Jerusalem and then throughout that region in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. And that includes us. Uh, That gospel came from Jerusalem, it traveled through many people and many nations, and it got here to us, and now we bear the responsibility to continue to take it to other places. And we learn about that as we learn here in the latter part of Acts from the Apostle Paul. Uh, the Apostle Paul was a great missionary for the kingdom of Christ, and he endured much suffering. And what we found our last time we looked at this book together is he was on a ship uh, that was about to be shipwrecked. And yet God had told him that he would bring him safely through that passage, safely to Rome, where he would give testimony to the gospel. And so uh, Luke ended chapter 27 by reminding us that we serve a God who keeps his promises. As he wrote, all were brought safely to the land. And so now on this journey to Rome, uh, Paul is a prisoner, has been stranded on this island of Malta, an ancient name which actually means refuge. And we see here God using this island of refuge to protect Paul and along the way, I think, to teach us some things about how we can better understand God's plan for us and discern His will for our lives. And so that's what I want us to consider as we read through this text this Lord's Day. I'm going to read Acts 28 verses 1 through 16 and then we'll spend some time looking at this passage together. And because we believe this is God's Word and not man's Word, and we revere it as such, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us, out of reverence for God's Word. And this is where we pick up, Acts 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, 
a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place, lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petoli. There we found brothers who were inviting us to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. If you would, pray with me. Father, I ask that you would do, in our time together, what only you can do. That you would wake us from our slumber. That you would work in our hearts, that we might better understand your word and live according to it. And for that to happen, Lord... It will not depend on the skill of man's tongue. It will not depend on a lack of distractions, Lord. That, that will only happen if you awaken us and you make us alive that we can hear and see and understand. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would do that work today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would be seated. When the early 1900s at a young age, a boy named Albert Carter was fascinated by all things mystical. Uh, He lived just up the road in Cincinnati, Ohio, and his mother was a rather famous fortune teller. Uh, She had become famous because of a fortune-telling invention she had called the Psycho Slate. Uh, The Psycho Slate was a small chalkboard that Albert's mother would put into a sealed container along with a few pieces of chalk and then she would invite her well-paying clients to come in and ask questions they had of the spirit world and then she would in some way have words or figures sketched in on that chalkboard and supposedly had communicated with the other world and could provide an answer to her clients questions for the right price. A young Albert didn't take long before his fascination turned into an idea of how he could profit off of this invention by mass marketing it. So he came up with an idea of his own. It was called the, the Psycho Seer. It was a tube that capped on both ends with a, 
a see-through cap on each end, and on the inside he put liquid and he put a dice and he wrote answers on that dice. Answers like yes and no and maybe and probably not. And then uh, he mass-marketed this device, the Psycho-Seer, advertising it this way. It's the Miracle Home Fortune Teller. It wasn't long before it caught the attention of a billiard company who was looking for a promotional item, and so they took the Psycho-Seer and and fashioned that tube into something that looked more like a pool ball. In fact, it looked just like a pool ball as they they darkened it in and put the number 8 on it. And then they started to sell that as the Magic 8 Ball. And the Magic 8 Ball was something I was familiar with as a child, and I wondered if folks still would be. And so I looked it up and found that that they're still selling about a million of them every year. This little novelty device that uh, you shake up and then the, 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 the little dice inside will come up with an answer to your question. About 20 different variations of answers. Now, I, I'm not here to say this morning or suggest that, that you're making major life decisions with a magic eight ball or that many people out there are doing that. But I am here to suggest that many times we make our decisions in equally superstitious ways. We're not so far removed from the savages of Malta who were trying to interpret what gods or the gods were doing based on signs, based on indications, and they felt those things then communicated a deeper meaning in the universe. I think that isn't so far removed from what we see in our culture today. Because so often, we even in the church... Well, we look for signs, don't we? We look for indications. We look for some type of uh, divine discernment where God might just kind of point us or shove us in the right direction. And yet, many times when we do that, I think we do it in a largely unbiblical way. And so today, I want us to consider something that I think that's very relevant for all of us. How do we discern God's will? How do we know God's plan? How do we... in Know what God is indicating to us that He wants us to do. And I want us to consider that as we learn a bit more about this island of Malta, the savages there, and Paul's interaction with them. And as we do, I want to start with this point that I think we find very clearly throughout God's Word. That point one there in your notes. That God's will is revealed through His Word. God's will is revealed through His Word. Now consider Paul for a moment. Paul had a special revelation from God. Uh, Paul was sitting there in a prison cell in Acts 23, and the Lord Himself came to Paul and said, you're going to go to Rome. And so Paul had this promise from the lips of the Lord Himself. And then later in Acts chapter 27, Paul's on this ship, and an angel of God appears to him and says, you're going to be okay, everybody's going to survive the storm, you're going to make it to Rome. So Paul had a direct word from God. Wouldn't that be a nice thing to have? (laughs) Well, wouldn't it be nice when you sit down tonight at your bedside and you consider the questions that are before you? Who should I date? Who should I marry? How should I deal with this business deal? When should I retire? How should I spend my money? What should we do about this doctor's diagnosis? What action should I take here? Wouldn't it be nice as you laid those questions out if you had some type of word from God? 
Well, wouldn't it be nice if like Paul in the prison cell, if Jesus just appeared to you and said, well, well, here's the answer to your question. Well, wouldn't that be a nice thing? I would suggest to you today that, that we have a greater word from God than the Apostle Paul had. The Apostle Paul certainly had special revelation from the Lord. Now we see God working this way in the book of Acts, and we've talked about it. Before the book of Acts, or during the book of Acts, you don't have the complete revealed Word of God. And so God is working in very supernatural ways. But then what we see Him doing in His church is He provides us this Word. And so friends, if you want to know the will of God, if you want a Word from God, you begin by opening up this book. And as long as the book remains shut, and you come to it asking for God to give you an answer, will you treat it a little bit more like a magic eight ball than God's Word? Let me think about it. Remember a friend in college who once was looking for an answer, seeking to discern what God would have her do. She simply took her Bible out, and she just flipped the pages and came to a point and pointed at a word. We would never do anything that foolish, would we? No, we look for signs and wonders all the time, and we treat God's Word much like we treat a magic eight ball. And I would suggest to you that there is a better way to learn God's will from His Word. And it starts here. If you this morning want to know God's personal will for your life, that this is where you start. You start by seeking to better understand His providential will. And this is what I mean by that. God's providence is the way that He has worked throughout salvation history. And so you have to get the big picture. You have to understand the big picture. How in the garden there was sin and rebellion and how God promised a Redeemer. And then throughout the Old Testament you have this picture of the Gospel that God would provide a sacrifice in His Son Jesus. That Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. And that He would call us to repent and trust in Christ. There's this big picture there of how God works. And so then you start learning about Abraham and Moses and David and Paul and others. And you see, here's how God worked in their lives. And you get a big picture of what God is doing there. And then as you learn about His providential will, along the way you'll find Him giving very specific instructions, very specific commands. And then in light of the gospel, you seek to obey those commands. God says do this. God says do not do this. Okay, God, I see your big picture will, and now I'm going to seek to obey you. And then as you do that, as you seek to better understand the big picture, and you seek to obey what God has made very clear, then His personal will becomes easier to discern. The problem for most of us, however, is We have a tendency to ignore the things God has clearly told us. And then at the same time, we want to have some special revelation from God. And so oftentimes what I've seen, for example, in relationships is is we want this revelation from God. God, is this the person for me? Is this the person I should marry? Is this the person I should be with? And oftentimes, in the context of asking that question, we're clearly disobeying God in areas of our relationship. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6.18, God has clearly said, flee from sexual immorality. That is any intimacy outside of the context of a man and a woman being in a covenant marriage relationship. Any intimacy outside of that, according to the Scripture, is sin, and we should repent of it. 
And so if you are in unrepentant sin in this clear area, but you're asking God for discernment in this other area, we have a problem, don't you? And so it begins by seeking to obey what God has clearly told us to do. And then as we do those things, well, His will becomes clear. But, but here's what we often do. Here's where I think our tendency is. Is rather than seek to understand God's providence, and rather than seek to obey what He's clearly told us to do, we've become accustomed to just looking for signs. God, just show me. God, open up a door. Or God, will you close a door? And we start to look for these signs. And friends, I want to propose to you this morning, not only is that, I believe, unbiblical, but, but it's very dangerous. See, signs will lead you somewhere. But oftentimes they will mislead you in the wrong direction. And we see an example of that in this passage. Look at Acts 28 there. So Paul arrives on this island of savages. These people have not heard the gospel. They are trusting in Roman and Greek mythology. They are looking to the gods they have been taught about. And so when Paul arrives and picks up a bundle of sticks, and there happens to be a snake in there that bites him, what do they think? They think that surely this man is a murderer. They think that this man has offended the gods. In fact, they bring up the name Justice here. Justice was a, believed to be a Greek goddess. She was one of the many children of Zeus and his many escapades. And Justice was believed by the Greeks and the Romans to enact fairness. Now we might say it today like this. What comes around goes around. It's karma, you might hear people say. Well, for the savages at Malta, they believed then that Paul, when he was bit by this snake, well, that must mean the goddess Justice is enacting her revenge because he escaped death in the sea. He will not escape death now. now. They are simply looking at Paul saying, something bad has happened to you, therefore you must have done something wrong. We, we would never think that today, would we? We would never find ourselves saying something like, well, what comes around goes around. We, we wouldn't do that, would we? we? We'd never associate anything to something like karma. <laughs> We'd never say, well, I guess they had that coming. No, we would. And we have. And you know, it's a struggle that even the disciples had. You remember there in John chapter 9 when the disciples were with Jesus and they passed the blind man? You remember what they said? Jesus... Is this man blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? What comes around goes around is what they're saying. This is karma. He had this coming to him. That's what they say. And Jesus, in correcting us, He corrects them and says, no, this man's blindness was that God might be glorified and then He heals this man. You see, signs can can be very misleading, especially because signs tend to change. <laughs> we really have to twist things around to make them say what we want to, and they tend to change, and that's exactly what happens here because Paul doesn't die. He doesn't drop dead. In fact, as the Scripture goes on, Luke tells us that, verse 5, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And so now the savages of Malta are just waiting. Okay, surely justice did this to him, and he's going to drop dead and die, and so it doesn't happen. So now what do they think? Oh, he must be a god then. 
I mean, how fickle is that? But friends, that, that is exactly what happens when we put our faith in signs. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you're seeking to better understand God's will, begin by asking yourself the question, and seeking to understand God's will, are you dependent on His Word? Are you just trying to read signs? You're going to look for a home. You pull up to that home, and wouldn't you know it, the address is 309. And you know what? Your birthday is March 9th. And then as you're talking to your spouse about this house, you look down and the clock reads 309. Surely this must be a sign from God. Never mind the fact that the house is twice what your budget is. That <laughs> This must be a sign from God, right? What happens when the next house address is 410 and your spouse was born on 410? <laughs> you're a young lady and you're... You're very serious in a dating relationship and you're trying to figure out if this is the person God would have for you to marry. Your boyfriend asks you to go to a jewelry store. You're going to look at rings together and you're still not sure if this is the one or not. So as you're approaching that ring counter, you, you come up with this idea, God, if, if this is the one, then whatever ring I pick out, it's, it's going to fit my finger. And if it doesn't fit, then God, it must not be the one. Well, what happens if it fits and then you lose 50 pounds and it doesn't fit? Or we, we are fickle, fickle people. And if you are trusting in signs this Lord's day to lead you, you are being led, but you may be led the wrong place. Everything will lead you somewhere. <laughs> And what we can learn from the savages on the island of Malta is that we are not to trust in signs. We are to trust in the revealed word of God. But to trust in it, we have to know it. And to know it, friends, you have to open up and read it. It's not a magic eight ball. It's not to be shaken and stirred for an answer to come to the top. It's to be studied and read through the lifetime of a believer. And then you begin to see this big picture of God. And then you begin to understand what He's calling you to do. And then discerning His personal will. Then it becomes a bit, bit easier. Other than that, we're left to depend on house numbers. <laughs> Point two. What we find then as we seek to discern God's will is this. God often, often accomplishes His will in unexpected ways. Now here's the pattern. Usually what we see in Paul is he arrives at a city, he preaches the gospel, and then he gets beaten, in prison, or he has to flee. That, that's pretty much the pattern we see. And so imagine this for a second if you're Paul. You have sought to faithfully serve the Lord. This has happened all the while. Now you're on a ship. You've told the ship's captain this isn't a good idea. He says, well, we're going to sail anyways. You sail right into a storm. God says, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be safe. You're going to land on the island. Then you land on an island of savages. Godless people that you've heard all kinds of things about. And you start thinking about the pattern in your life. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go and talk to them about God and some are going to accept and some aren't and then eventually they're just going to throw me back in the water. But notice what, Paul, what God does here. God acts in a very unexpected way. This actually is an island of refuge and kindness for Paul. 
Verse 2, the native people showed him unusual kindness. Verse 7, they received us, Luke tells us, and entertained us hospitably. Verse 10, they honored us greatly. In fact, they even give uh, Paul and his companions everything they're going to need for their journey moving forward. And it's a good reminder to us here. Just a, just a side note, but an important side note. That God often moves in very unexpected ways. And at times, those are ways where we overwhelmingly see His grace like this. I mean, that's what the gospel is, isn't it? Who expected the gospel apart from God's revelation? You have offended a holy God and sinned against Him. You and I are deserving of an eternal hell and under the wrath of God for all eternity because of our sin. But God in His goodness towards us put His Son on the cross, His one and only Son, who did no wrong, who was perfect, and killed Him on a cross. Crucified Him so that you and I could live. Is that what you would expect? How many of you would give up your child for me? I can go ahead and tell you, I wouldn't give up my child for one of you. Nothing personal. We think about giving things up. We think about laying down our life. But what would it take for you to give your child, if it was your one and only child, to just give them up for someone who was sinful and rebellious and didn't even ask for it? And yet we see God's goodness there, don't we? His grace. He does what's unexpected. But but we also see it in other ways too, don't we? Maybe you expected the Christian life would be a bit easier than it's been. Maybe you expected less suffering or fewer trials. Maybe you expected other people to live longer, to be healthier. Maybe you expected to, to work in that job or live in that city or be in that relationship for a, for a lot longer than it's turned out. And maybe today you are struggling with even the notion of God having a plan for your life because you're looking around at carnage and wreckage and turmoil and suffering. How do you reconcile that? How do you even begin to ask God what His will is when you're in the middle of suffering in ways that you never expected to suffer? And, and then you compound that by being in the American church in the U.S. where so many will tell you, turn that frown upside down. <laughs> Just have more faith. Have more trust. God, God blesses you. God helps those who help themselves, doesn't He? That's what we're told. Comes around, goes around. Just trust anymore. Have faith anymore. And so you do that and you try that. I'm going to have more faith. And then it seems you have more suffering. And then the more faith you have, the more suffering you have. And then this prosperity gospel equation in the American church, you find out it's wrong. So how in the midst of that do you consider for a moment, God, what is your will for me? start, friends, again by looking at His providential will and seeing how He's worked in the lives of others. And a great place to start when you ask that question is the Apostle Paul. I mean, think about Paul's life. 
Here's a guy who had everything going for him, and he lays down his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happens to him? He suffers. And so he takes a stand for the gospel. And what happens? He's beaten to the point where everybody thinks he's dead, and they just drag him and leave him outside of town. And so then he gets to that moment. I mean, Paul knew he was going to suffer. God said he was going to show him how much he must suffer. But he gets to that moment where I think Paul may have been thinking, okay, finally I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get back to my people. My friends, my family, the folks I grew up with, and I'm going to tell them about what God's done. I'll tell them about how I've suffered for His sake. And I'm just going to rejoice and see people come to faith in Christ. And he gets to Jerusalem, and what happens? Falsely accused. Imprisoned. And then he goes from one jail cell to another, and then God preserves his life by putting him on a ship that looks like it's about to sink. <laughs> and God just keeps taking care of him, and yet he just keeps suffering. And yet notice what he does. In verse 15, as he continues in this journey, he gets to the point where he runs into some other believers, and verse 15 tells us, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Would you thank God after you lost everything? Do you thank God when you've lost everything? If ever there's a time, an excuse for someone in the Scripture to do what Job's wife told him to do and just be done with it all and curse God and die, perhaps this would be the place. Paul has lost everything. And yet here Paul encounters these other believers, not with suffering stories of turmoil, not with pray for me, not with bemoaning his life, but he encourages them by thanking God and taking courage. And I think there's something there for us. The last point there in your notes. No matter what we encounter, we can thank God and we can trust in His will. We've learned a lot about suffering in the book of Acts. I hope that you will take this in light of all that suffering we've learned about. It is entirely possible in the midst of our suffering to be thankful and to trust God. Not in some artificial way, not in some way that gives us lip service. It's entirely possible even that in the midst of our suffering, God is taking our focus off of this temporal fading world to put our focus on a place that never fades, on glory that is to come. And that God is allowing this suffering in order to get our, our grip loosened on the things of this world that we might hold tightly to the promises that lie before us. And so if you find yourself this Lord's Day struggling with hope and hopelessness, as a believer in Christ, it is entirely possible then that you have been placing your hope in the wrong things. And that's why you're hopeless. Because this world was not meant to sustain your hope. That relationship was not meant to sustain your hope. The things of this world will indeed fade. And if that is where your hope is today, then you will wrestle with hopelessness because those things will fail you. But there is another way. It is to hope in the things that are to come. I am looking forward to sharing with you more about 
the, the work that God is doing uh, throughout the world, specifically there in West Africa, and the opportunity Chris Coulter and I had to go there just a couple weeks ago. We'll be sharing about that at our next members meeting on March 13th. But I want to share with you this morning about one individual that I met. An elderly man in one of the villages who was dying. And this man uh, had first heard the gospel from the missionary I was with who had, who had taken the gospel to that village. This village had existed for hundreds of years with no gospel witness. No, no one ever knowing the gospel of Jesus. And this missionary, the first person he encountered as he walked on the road into that village was this elderly man who was a witch doctor. <laughs> you think about that for a second. You might pass that one up and go to the next guy. But, but he stopped this witch doctor and he began to share with him the gospel and the truth of the kingdom of Christ. And this man who had put his faith in spells and in potions and in false gods repented of his sin and placed his faith fully in the Lord Jesus. And as we read in the book of Acts, literally did away with all his books of magic and trusted in the one true Christ. And you know what happened after that? He suffered. Not just the persecution of others who were unbelievers, but his health quickly declined, and now he is dying in a village surrounded by death. And so that missionary had made many trips to get him medicine and help out with him and try to take care of him. And the last time he had been there, he said he thought it would be the last time he'd ever see this guy here on earth because he was just at that point of death. But I show up to this man's hut to talk with him and pray with him and find that he is just smiling and joyful. And as I prayed for him, he, he took my hand and he placed it on his head. And he said, Pastor, do not pray for God to heal me. Do, do not pray that I'll get better. Pray that I'll be with my Lord Jesus soon. We, we live in a part of the world, friends, where we hold so tightly. What do we ask? We all pray that this person gets better. Pray that they're healed. Pray that this medication works. Pray for this procedure. And, and I'm thankful to live in the part of the world we live in. I will spend most of Tuesday with my wife and child at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I am, I am so thankful for those doctors. I am thankful for the advancements in medicine and in these physicians. I, I am thankful for those things. But don't put your hope there. I'm thankful that there are pills and shots and cures and answers. But friends, don't put your hope there. Because God has called us to place our hope in a greater kingdom. And He has called us to put our hope in a greater place. And He has told us His will clearly throughout His Word. If you're suffering this morning, if you're not suffering this morning, you want to know what God's will is? I'll tell you right now what His will is. You don't need a magic eight ball. You don't need to start shaking your Bible. <laughs> Here it is. 2 Corinthians 4, His will is this. Don't lose heart. That's what He says. He says very clearly, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Amen. I look in a mirror and I'm reminded of that. <laughs> this is wasting away. Some of you farther along than I am. This isn't it, friends. 
I don't care what the potion says, the lotion, the pill, the diet, it's going to fade. It's wasting away, the Scripture says. So we don't put our hope in this. Put our hope in Christ. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, how often we place our hope in the things we can see. Is that where your hope is today? Place it on what you cannot see. Place it on the Gospel. Place it on our Christ. Place it on a kingdom that is coming. Because friends, this kingdom here is fading. If you watch the news and our, our political climate, and you're disappointed and you're hopeless, your hope might be in the wrong thing. Vote. Be a part of these things. But don't put your hope there. Put your hope in Christ. And be thankful for the Gospel of Christ. Be thankful and be thankful. And in the midst of your suffering, be even more thankful. And you may say, well, how? what is there to thank God for? I was reminded a good word along those lines from Pastor John Piper this last week. He said this, If you did not wake up in hell this morning or in a thousand miseries that befell this world last night, there is great reason to give thanks. Amen. Hallelujah for that. Praise God and thank Him. And if your eyes are on Him, friends, put your eyes on Him. And live your life focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with this illustration. It may be familiar to some of you. Some of you may be familiar, may have read with your children the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. More popular recently because there were some movies made and in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you're not familiar with them, you've got this different world. You've got animals that can talk, but they're, they're representing something of our faith. And so, the, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia is the lion Aslan. And Aslan's land, Aslan's country, it's, it's the new kingdom. It's where we as believers, we, we look towards the kingdom that is coming. We don't put our gaze on this world, we look to the kingdom to come. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, you've got this, this valiant little follower of Aslan. He's actually a mouse named Reepy Cheep. But, but Reepy Cheep is determined to keep his focus on Aslan's country. And he comes to a point in Voyage of the Dawn Treader where he is traveling and he is intent on focusing on the kingdom that lies ahead while others are worried and scared. This is what he tells them. My own plans are made. While I can, I shall sail east in the dawn treader, and when she fails me, I shall paddle east in my coracle, and when she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws, and when I can swim no longer, if I've not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world, I shall sink with my nose to Aslan's land. Friends, may we as believers, have the resolve of a fictional mouse. <laughs> that, that no matter what befalls us, our gaze will be on Christ. And when we go 
to the doctor's office and they say we are dying, may our focus be on Christ. And when we lay in a hospital bed gasping for air, may our focus be on Christ. And may the last breath we take in this lost and fallen and fading world, may our eyes be focused on Christ. And if your eyes are anywhere else this morning, turn them and gaze upon the promise of the Gospel. Do not put your hope in man, put your hope in Christ. That is the invitation this and each Lord's Day. If you would stand together as we pray.